I bet you that 20% of the people in prison, they pled guilty to things they either didn't do or they pled guilty when they should have gone to court and fought it. But I'll tell you a, a little secret. What, and this is something I've learned that I never really focused on before and I didn't think of. You don't actually have the constitutional rights you think you have unless you have the money to pay for them. Mm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Strongcast with your host, Armstrong Williams. You know, this is an unusual Strongcast for us today um, because it's rare that we have a former police commissioner and commissioner of prison in our Strongcast studio to talk about policing the community, crime, and all the issues that the media loves to cover about law enforcement sometimes always have a negative overture. It's rare that the good stories get reported. And it's amazing what happens when law enforcement is almost criminalized, demonized, and is painted as inhuman, savages, rapists. Uh, it takes on a whole different thread as we get, begin to see how it plays out in our society today. And so what uh, William and I, who's with the Daily Beast, are going to do today, we're going to really probe into law enforcement. What really happens to law enforcement in terms of their interaction with community and the kinds of um, crimes and situations that we see evolve today? And who better to have on than the former commissioner of police and prisons, uh, than Bernard Carrick, which is the biggest, most important city, as far as I'm concerned, in the world. In fact, when Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York, crime just, plummet, just plummeted. I mean, what he was able to do with crime uh, and able to clean up the strip clubs, the, the, just the whole area of New York, what he was able to do that he doesn't get credit for is remarkable. And other um, police forces across the country have tried to copy what he was able to do. And all, everyone always said, there's no way you can take a big city like New York and bring crime and drugs and illicit sex under control, but it happened. So is it something that happens, Commissioner Carrick, let, 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 let us welcome you to the show. Is it something that happens at the top? Is it a communication between the top and the community? Is it in your training? What does it take? Because what we learned from New York is that crime can be very simply put under control. It can be mastered, it can be conquered, it can be cleaned up. And your great city set the example. And the only time it can be done is when you have leadership, leadership at the top that holds their managers accountable to do it, creates the programs that needs to be done to address crime, um, and then uh, works with the communities to get it done. And when Rudy Giuliani took over in 1994, we had about 2,000, more than 2,000 homicides. Um, it was out of control, the city. Um, it was filthy. It was dirty. Uh, I mean, you can remember going down, you know, down the, the Hudson uh, River Drive, uh, Hudson, uh, Hudson uh, Parkway, Henry Hudson Parkway. Old abandoned vehicles on the side of the road. Nobody ever cleaned them up. People urinating in the streets. Nobody talked to them. People spraying graffiti all over buildings. Panhandlers. You name it, it was all over the city when... When Rudy came in in 1994, he said, look, nobody wants to work, live, 
visit and go to school to a place they don't feel safe. So first and foremost, we have to clean up the crime. You have poverty stricken neighborhoods in New York City where mothers were literally putting their babies in bathtubs at night to protect them from gunfire. That's how they lived in, in areas like in Brownsville, Bedford-Stuyvesant, uh, places up in the Bronx. And Rudy came in and said, number one priority, crime reduction. And here's the crazy thing. For every percentage point that we reduced crime, I could show you increases in tourism, economic development, real estate values, in all the stuff that creates flourishing in a city. And, um, and that's what he did. You know, so before, uh, I know William wants to jump into the situation. So what is wrong in Baltimore and Chicago that they cannot get their crime under control? Uh, well, they, you have Baltimore, Chicago, St. Louis, Milwaukee, um, and a bunch of other cities, right, where you have crazy violent crime, um, poverty-stricken neighborhoods, and, and everybody wants to jump on the socioeconomic, you know, poverty issue and basically say, you know, we need, we need education for kids. We need businesses. We need jobs. But this goes back to what Rudy said in the beginning. You're not going to have jobs. You're not going to have businesses come to a community if the people building those businesses don't feel like it's safe. So you have to clean up the crime in areas like Chicago and Baltimore and others. The mayors have to realize you've got to do something about violent crime. You've got to knock it down. One of the ways to do it, you have to collect the right data. You've got to know where the cops are going. You've got to create the right programs. You have to hold the cops accountable to do the job they're sworn to do. But you also have to work with the community leaders to make sure that they know they've got to support the police officers that work in the, those communities. The biggest reductions in crime in New York City, overall, on, on a national scale, we had a 65% reduction in violent crime in his eight years and a 70% reduction in homicide. But there are communities, in, in black communities in New York City, where you had a 90% reduction in homicide. 90% during Rudy Giuliani's tenure. Why? because the cops were out there doing what had to be done. Today, people are politically correct. They, 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 pick, they, they focus on the cops like they're the enemy. Uh, they don't support the law enforcement. And look, I'm not saying every cop is perfect. Every cop's a good guy. There are some bad apples. When there are some bad apples, get rid of them. You fire them, you lock them up, you administratively uh, deal with them, uh, but at the end of the day, 99, 98, 99% of the cops that go out there and do this job on a daily basis, they put their lives on the line for people they don't even know, regardless of what color they are, regardless of where they came from. They put their lives on the line. And they go out and do a job that nobody else would do, and they do it well. Um, but they need the support of the community, and most importantly, they need the leadership. They need the mayors. They need the governors. They need the city council, they need them to support them and let them do their job. How much of impact, and this is a dicey question here, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, Baltimore, 
have a very high concentration of Americans who happen to be black. And people would say that because you have such a high concentration, there you find much crime and they're involved in the mix. My attitude is no one commits crime because of their race or their gender. They commit a crime because of their behavior. But how difficult is it for law enforcement to separate race when you have a, such a high number, given the demographics that I just mentioned, and doing their job and not profiling uh, and not having the kind of, while they're rare, the accusations become the narrative instead of the overall 90% of the job that the law enforcement does without race being involved. Well, here's, here's what I think a lot of people don't understand. The way we address crime in New York City, I had nothing to do with color, I had nothing to do with race at all. You basically crime map a neighborhood, okay? Every incident of crime, whether it's a robbery, a burglary, a homicide, a, a carjacking, stolen vehicles, whatever it is, you pin map a map in that community, okay? I don't care what color the people are. I don't care who lives in that community. You're sending the cops where that crime is. You're sending the cops where you know you're 100% positive where that crime is. Now, the people may be black in that community. They may not be. To the cops, it doesn't make any difference. They're going where the crime is. And that's what I think people don't understand. You know, you have people out there. I've heard, you know, the critics, they're targeting blacks in certain neighborhoods. Okay, the entire neighborhood happens to be black. And there's a lot of crime there. That's what the cops are doing there. They don't, they don't care about the color of your skin. They care about what's going on there. And who's the victims? They're black. Who's calling 911? They're black. So those cops are responding to those 911 calls. And, um, and that's the way it works. But I, I think people lose sight of that. You know, especially the, uh, you know, you have antagonists, you have people out there that, you know, they, they're on an agenda. They have their own agenda for whatever reason. Um, but at the end of the day, cops are going to go out and do the job they have to do, regardless of what color you are. And, and the one thing that you, when you opened up, you said they don't get the credit they deserve. Or, you know, you got people out there bashing them constantly. I, I'll tell you something. I wish that people saw on a daily basis the positive the cops do. Um, all of the positive things, whether it's heroics, whether it's you know taking care of kids, whether it's you know giving some guy a, a, a pair of sneakers out of their gym bag, you know you rarely see that. There's a lot of it out there, but you rarely see it. You know you'll see the negative in a second. But you don't see the positive because nobody wants to focus. It doesn't make headlines. It's not a big story. No, I, I agree. I agree with the commissioner. I think that PC culture has really hamstrung law enforcement to the degree where there's less proactive policing. Uh, a, a researcher at Manhattan Institute called it the Ferguson effect, where after Ferguson, the incident with Michael Brown, a, a young black man who was shot by a white police officer, it was blamed on you know, the white officer's race and so on. And it didn't turn, you know, until the facts came out, it was really shown to be a justified shooting. It made cops uh, more reticent to enter these problem areas in St. Louis and Baltimore. And you saw spikes in violent crimes. And the people that perpetuate the PC culture seldom think about who are the people they're hurting when there's less pro proactive policing in these neighborhoods. And it tends to be the most vulnerable. 
uh, you know, black kids in Chicago uh, getting caught in the crossfire. Same in Baltimore, same in St. Louis. These are the people that they claim to care about the most. And they're the ones that are hurt by this PC culture, by everything becoming uh, engulfed in a political narrative where, you know, the media, the intelligentsia are saying, you know, disparities in society are caused by, you know, white racism and and, and, and white uh, ethnocentrism and so on. And it's the white man keeping them down. In the meantime, they're the ones that are harming, you know, these vulnerable people in these urban communities. And, uh, you know, we keep taking tools out of the police's tool chest. And I think it's dangerous. And I think more people are getting hurt and it, it's costing lives. But he, and you know what? To, to what he says, that's where the leadership comes in. If you recall back when Rudy Giuliani was mayor, there were critics out there. Big PC proponents, they were out there and they were they were talking all the same junk that they may be talking today, but Rudy didn't fall for it. Rudy didn't care. Rudy said, look, I get it. I understand it. I'll look at your concerns, but we're not slowing down on aggressive uh, addressing of crime. We're not doing that. We're going to rid the city of the problem. And like I said, for every percentage point, and, th- and this is... You know, keep in mind, we're talking 1994, right? This 20-something, 28 years ago now, right? 24 years ago. That's a long time. People forget. They forget what New York City was like before he got there. But I was a cop in New York City. And I remember when I first went on the job, I, uh, I had a foot post on West 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. One block. One block. We had eight cops on that block, four on each side, plus a sergeant. And for 24 hours a day, I don't care if you worked a day tour, an afternoon tour, a midnight tour, it didn't make any difference. On a foot post, you ran from one end of the street to the other, man with a gun, robbery in progress, somebody got stabbed, somebody threw somebody under a train, So there's a rape in a theater. Mm. 24 hours a day, that's what was going on mm. in New York City. And after 1994, when Rudy came in and it started to change, by the time we left office, when we walked out the door on December 31st, 2001, 42nd Street was like Disney World. When I was a kid, I wasn't even allowed on 42nd Street or near Times Square. I'm born and raised just outside the city. There were areas in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Bushwick, like he said, Bedford Stuyvesant, you wouldn't touch. Now I go down and visit my friends on Willoughby, right in Bed Stuy, or I go into Clinton Hill, no problem. Now, I mean, so it continues today. No, this is—it's all cleaned up today. But it, but it continues. Yeah. Oh, it, the policy. It continues yeah. today. It continues today. The police continue today the same programs that Giuliani started in 1994. If they changed the way they police. It would be a very different system. Why can't other cities adopt what works? Because PC they don't. culture. It's the PC yeah. culture. Yeah. At the I'm expense of people dying and alarming numbers? Yeah, yeah but they, uh, you know, honestly, uh, Armstrong, they don't get it, man. I- I'm telling you. There's no way they can't get it, Commissioner. They have to get it. Well, listen, you know, we've gone around to uh, both Rudy and I and Bill Bratton. Bill Bratton did it in LA. He went out to LA, mm-hmm. dropped crime substantially. Same kind of program, same stuff. Um, but you got to get away from the PC culture. Baltimore and Chicago, thriving business perspective they can have there. Major, major business stuff going on. Phenomenal cities. They could be if they would knock out 
the criminal activity, the violent crime. It can be done. See, here's the thing. When people talk to me about this, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me it can't be done. We did it in the biggest city. We did it in the most violent city. We did it in the most filthy city. We did it. So don't tell me it can't be done. Don't tell me it doesn't work. Don't, I don't want to hear it because we did it. Yeah, there's a blueprint for it. It worked in New York. We, we know how it's done. And, you know, when the left, and that's who's doing it, that's who, who's perpetuating the, these myths, when they care more about people than the narrative and their own self-aggrandizement, that's when you'll see things start to change. But I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. You know, you wrote a book just groundbreaking about the prison culture. Right. Which you have stepped back. There are lessons that you learn, things that you would have advocated decades ago when it comes to the prison system that you would not advocate it now. Talk about that. I think that's critical. Look, I, I think, first of all, I'm no different of a law and order guy today than I was 20, 25 years ago, right? Bad guys that do bad things belong in prison. People that are engaged in violent crime belong in prison. But when you take... You take commercial fishermen that caught too many fish <laughs> and you put them in federal prison for 18 months, two it's years, crazy. and you really take their crazy. licenses, you take their boats, you, take, you, you fire the people that were on those boats, you destroy their lives, and forever, for, I, don't, I don't care how old they are, forever, they can't go back to work, that's a problem. A young guy sells a whale's tooth on eBay, nine months in federal prison. And here's what, here's what really bothers me. In the black community, places like Baltimore and Chicago, under the federal sentencing guidelines, you take a kid, a young man, a young girl, that, you know, they, they buy, you know, a dime bag of cocaine three times a week, and they get caught up in some conspiracy. Some, the DEA or the feds are looking at some bad guy. But these young kids... They're dealing with that bad guy on a daily basis in a very low-level, first-time way. What do we do? We put those kids in prison for 10, 15 years. You know what that does? It turns them into thugs. Prison is a training ground for thuggery and criminality. That's what it really mm. is. It's not an education center. It's not a learning center. It's not rehabilitative like it's supposed to be. It's not. So we take those kids. And we put them away for 10, 15 years, and then we send them back home. And when they go back home, all these people in Washington are complaining because the recidivism rate's not dropping. Well, guess what? You didn't do anything when they were inside. You didn't teach them vocational skills. You didn't give them life lessons. You didn't teach them life skills and work ethic. You taught them nothing, and you sent them back to the communities from which they came, and now you're complaining because... They're going back to prison. Well, what are they supposed to do? They're black. They're a convicted felon. And that's, that's, exact, that's what they've told me. I taught a life lessons class in a federal prison. And I, had, I told this kid, I said, look, you got to get your GED. You got to get it while you're in prison. He said, hey, Commission, I'm black. I'm a convicted felon. I'm going back to Baltimore. Guess what? That GED is never going to help me. And here's the sick, ironic thing. He's absolutely right. I don't care if he has a GED. I don't care if he has a master's, a bachelor's. It's not going to help him. 
that felony conviction lingers over you like a black cloud for eternity until the day they put you in the ground. So we're creating this second underclass of American citizen by the millions. And I think it's wrong. I think bad people that do really bad things, violent crime people, all right, put them in prison. But we have to think about the drug courts. We have to think about the way kids are- What should happen to them? Uh, Look, I think people can be held accountable. Mm -hmm. On, On the white collar side, you know, you go outside, you park your car wrong, what happens? You get a summons, right? You don't pay the summons, you go to jail. They lock you up for 30 days. But you pay the summons, that's it, it's gone, okay? Commercial fisherman catches too many fish, take his fish. Suspend his license, fine him. Fine him twice, do something. But don't destroy him and his family for eternity. That's what we have a tendency to do. Are these mandatory minimums that you're talking about? Is that is it by law, well, by statute that they have to be in jail? Some of it's by statute. Look, you have a kid that was out west somewhere. You know, he, he got involved in selling uh, marijuana, and the judge gave him 55 years by a mandatory minimum, and the judge himself said that the sentence was wrong. It was completely wrong. You've had judges actually write to the president of the United States calling for a commutation of a sentence that he was bound to impose by federal law. All right, that's ridiculous. There's something wrong. When that stuff happens, somebody in Congress has to look at it. But here's the problem. We just went through this with the First Step Act. We had conservative legislators adamantly against changing any of this because they're scared to death they're going to look soft on crime. You know what? Be smart on crime. Take a look at what you're doing and the lives you're destroying. You know, and I know there's people out there, they say, oh, you do the time, you, you know, you, you do the crime, you got to do the time. Well, the bottom line is, I bet you that 20% of the people in prison, they pled guilty to things they either didn't do or they pled guilty when they should have gone to court and fought it. But I'll tell you a, a little secret. What, and this is something I've learned that I never really focused on before and I didn't think of. You don't actually have the constitutional rights you think you have unless you have the money to pay for them. Mm. You can't fight the American government. When that indictment comes to your hand and you look at it and it says the United States of America versus your name, I promise you, it's the whole United States of America. And guess what? You ain't got that kind of money. So if somebody like me or you, somebody in the studio, if you couldn't, we couldn't fight the American government. We couldn't fight charges against us. How do you think a young black kid from Baltimore, from Washington, D.C., how, how do you think they fight it? They don't. They give up. They get a public defender who tells them, go in, take a plea. You know, they're offering you 25 to life. They're going to give you 10. And that kid goes into a court. He swears under oath to tell the truth. And then he, he admits to a judge he conspired to possess Two and a half kilos of cocaine and uh, a kilo of heroin. That kid's never seen two and a half kilos of cocaine and a kilo of heroin. But he has to say it to get that time. And guess what? The prosecutor knows he's lying. His attorney knows he's lying. And the judge knows he's lying. Because the judge has the indictment. 
the judge saw what his original charges stemmed from. So the system's flawed. You know, we, we, sit, we have one of the best criminal justice systems in the world, but I'll tell you, it's flawed and failed in many ways. And I think, uh, I think it has to get fixed. And I, give, I wanna give the president an enormous amount of credit for the First Step Act. I, I honestly, uh, in all honesty, I didn't think he would get it done. Uh, he did get it done, and, and I think it's got to be exactly what it says, the first step. Has to, there has to be more. William? I totally agree with him. I think that mandatory minimums I don't think are ever any good. I think each case should be looked at individually for this reason. I mean, there's a difference between, you know, somebody who's a distributor who distributes, you know, uh, narcotics, uh, you know, across state lines and so on, and there's a, somebody who gets caught up in it, just buys a a dime bag or something, you know what I mean? I think the law should really be applied individually. So I totally agree. I don't think somebody should have their, you know, their livelihoods taken away from them in the case of fishermen catching too many fish. That's ridiculous. Um, you know, maybe there's a, there, there's a lot of it. There's an enormous amount of that stuff that goes on. Right. And the American people don't get it. They don't understand it. But I'll, I'll tell you something. If you if they, if the American people saw what I saw, um, there would be outrage and there would be change. They just don't, they, they don't understand it. They don't get it until it happens to them or somebody related to them. Mm -hmm. And then they get it. How can a, a young person who break the law and they're fighting for their lives, not to spend it in what they would see to be purgatory and they have a system that's supposed to be blind and, and, and everything about it should be integrity, but yet the system forces you to lie and they see this firsthand. I mean, what kind of character, what kind of message does well, our listen, court system when, send? When, and when you're inside amongst all those prisoners, that's all they talk about. That's all they talk about. That's all they talk about. And they should. Because that's not justice. That's not who we are. What kind of system is listen, this? As long as you have prosecutors that are, and here's, here's a major problem. Prosecutors their performance evaluations are based on their conviction rate. Their performance evaluations are based on the time that people get their sentence to. As long as you have that, as long as that's what they're based on. Now, public defender, he's not, his performance evaluation is not based on how many people gets acquitted. His performance evaluation is based on how many cases he gets off his desk. So what does he do? Take a plea, take a plea, yeah. take a plea, take a plea. You're not going to fight. Listen, I can't thank you enough for um, joining us today for this edition of The Strong Cast. Your, your final thoughts, words of wisdom, what we need to change immediately? Uh, I, one, I think around the country, I think leaders in, in cities like Chicago, Baltimore, and others, they need to take the lessons of New York City from 1994 to present. Look at what they've done and how they've done it and why they do what they do and go replicate it. Don't say it can't be done, it could be done. Um, that's number one. And number two, uh, legislators all over this country have to really take a look at the criminal justice system. You know, you got all, these, all this political rhetoric going on in Washington right now, Democrats versus Republicans and, attacking the president and, and like all this nonsense. You know what? There's people suffering in this country that they could really help and really do something for. 
and they're not doing it. Too, too focused on this political nonsense. Um, the other stuff's far more important. Commissioner Bernie Carrick, it's always an honor and pleasure to talk to with someone with experience, knowledge, wisdom, and also recommendations to make it all better going forward in the future. I thank you for your thank insights. You, William, thank it's you. always a pleasure. Thanks. I'm Armstrong Williams. Thank you for joining us for this edition of The Strong Cast.